I know that many Americans would think like, okay, this crazy woman is coming from Turkey, a crazy country, obviously, telling us that the United States has something common with Turkey. How can that be possible? But the thing I'm, I'm trying to do is to show people that there are common global patterns of how these men do business. So we shouldn't be wasting our time by being appalled, being surprised, being shocked. Let's see the main mechanism and let's find a way together to deal with it. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown and you're listening to TBD. As history shows us again and again, forms of government come and go. From the Romans to the Soviets, empires rise and empires fall. So too with democracies. A case in point is Turkey, a once vibrant secular democracy and a key US ally for decades that is now on the knife's edge of being a dictatorship. President Erdogan, who has run the country for 15 years, has stripped parliament of its power and taken control of the courts. He has disarmed all critics by labeling them terrorists, shut down almost 200 media outlets, and jailed more journalists than any other leader in the world. And when his party recently lost three key local elections, he tossed out the results and called for a new vote on June the 23rd, which he can do because he also controls the election boards. That's why it's so important to listen now to the Turkish journalist and writer Ece Tamilkaran, who believes that what happened in her homeland could happen here in the U.S. She sounds a warning in her new book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. Twice recognized as Turkey's most read political columnist, Tamulkaran was fired from her job in Istanbul for criticizing the Erdogan regime and dehumanized by his supporters on social media. In 2016, she left for Croatia, forfeiting her journalism career, her friends and her family in Turkey a country she no longer recognizes. Ece says she wrote the book because after losing her country, she wants to tell American citizens and others not to lose theirs. Ece, welcome to TBD. Hello, Tina. Thank you so much for having me. Your book opens with that dramatic night of July the 15th, 2016, the night of the attempted coup by the military in Turkey. I remember it so well being mesmerized <laughs> to my TV screen. Tell us about that night, what it was to live through it. It was both horrifying and absurd. I mean, like, tragedies do not come uh, on their own in Turkey. They are always accompanied by absurdities. So it was both uh, interesting to follow and it was also terrifying. I've been a journalist and I've been to war zones, but it's one thing to be in a war zone armored in journalism, you know, mindset. But it's another thing to 
hear all these fighter jets when you are in pajamas. So I was terrified. And for a long while, people did not take it seriously because, uh, as we know it from before, coups are not broadcasted, you know, live on TV and they do not happen on prime time. Which you're so, used to in Turkey because you've yeah. seen many coups. Well, uh, every generation has its own coup. Why was this coup different? There was this uh, frenzy of communication to start with. You know, Mr. Erdogan was on FaceTime on uh, CNN, CNN Turk, uh, and every other politician was making statements on live TV. And for a long time, we didn't understand it was a coup. It, it looked like some sort of a drill, army, military drill. Uh, and finally, yeah, I mean, it was obvious that something serious was happening. And the fighter jets, uh, it, they were so... Terrifying because when they uh, when they go really fast, they make this sound like a bomb. So many of us in Istanbul thought that Bosphorus Bridge was bombarded, and then on live TV we watched Parliament being bombarded uh, and several other state institutions. And meanwhile, of course, funny things were happening. Parliamentarians uh, they were in the Parliament and they were trying to find the shelter on the live TV. And then when they find the shelter, they they couldn't find the keys to get into the shelter. So it was funny and terrifying, absurd and horrifying. All these things happen in the at the same time. So this was an uprising by the military to get rid of Erdogan, but it failed, right? I mean, it was it a, failed. It totally yes. failed. Even before the military coup, uh, which strengthened in the end the hand of Erdogan. You went from being a widely respected journalist, twice recognized as Turkey's most read political columnist, to the target of death threats, right, and frightening social media attacks. Can you describe what they did to you as you criticized the Erdogan regime? Well, lately I saw this um, motto somewhere, I don't know where, uh, what doesn't kill you uh, messes you up, <laughs> <laughs> which is so true. I mean, like, what doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger at all. It really messes you up. And Emotionally, uh, I was wrecked. What were they doing to you that was so unsettling? Actually, uh, when you're in such an environment like Turkey or like any other Middle Eastern country would be the same, I think, death threats are kind of noble things. You you kind of carry them as a badge of honor. But the worst thing is being mocked, being ridiculed and systematically discredited uh, by trolls, by social media trolls. But not only them, I was also uh, mocked and discredited by uh, prominent, so-called prominent journalists who are supporting, who were supporting Erdogan. And, you know, it's not like uh, you receive a death threat and you go to the police and they do something about it. It is more like you are fighting with the ghosts, uh, it's like having a sword fight with the ghosts because these people are not there, but there's an army of virtual people uh, attacking you and saying all the lies about you. At one time, I was a concubine in a Saudi palace. And at one time, I was a spy for Germans. And then simultaneously, I was a spy for England. And I was so good at spying that Iranians also recruited me. <laughs> so just just kind of random, blanket, just absurd libels. Yeah, but yeah. people believe in those things. Yeah. Was there one experience, I mean, that made you realize, I'm unsafe here, I just have to live somewhere else for a while? Uh, well, it's, it doesn't happen overnight, of course. But uh, Patrick Colburn, who is a legendary uh, journalist from independent newspaper uh, from London, became a good friend of mine. He was in uh, Istanbul right after the coup, and we were talking. And I asked him, actually, you know, you know these things. You're older than me, so tell me, when I when should I leave? 
And he said, you don't want to leave when everybody wants to leave. You know, since I was 19, I was obsessed with Walter Benjamin. Uh, everybody left in the Nazi era, Germany, all these intellectuals, many of them, th those intellectuals left. But Walter Benjamin stayed and he was too late to go. And then he committed suicide on the Spanish border. And I was always angry with him. I'm like, how can you be so brilliant yet so stupid not to leave when it's time? But then when you live it, you understand. I completely, because you keep thinking it'll change, it'll change. And you, you, you sleep into this interesting mood where you, you know that nothing will be better, but then you don't accept it somehow. All those Jews were not stupid. They were in this mode, which I do understand personally. Yeah. So after, after he gave you that advice, what, what happened? Actually... I went to London to launch my previous book. And then because of the military coup, the entire media was quite you know, interested in the book. Uh, I received all the media attention and I was going back to Turkey. Uh, and at the time they were confiscating the passports. So I was at the passport line. The passport lady took the passport, looked at me, looked at the passport, looked at me, looked at the passport, and time is going, you know, passing. I was so terrified. I thought, okay, now they're going to either prosecute me or confiscate the passport. And then this passport lady screamed, Oh, Egyptian Alcron, can we take a selfie? <laughs> and I remember half of my face crying, half of my face laughing. And at that point, I thought, I cannot take this anymore. I'm like, you this. can't be in a passport line not knowing whether they're going to say, can I take a selfie or whether you're going to be arrested. Exactly. Yeah, no, I can see it must be extremely stressful. But you prefer not to be called an exile. No, no. It's emotionally too heavy a baggage, you know, because once you're in exile, you're in exile. That's it. You're no, no going back from right. that. And you want to make it clear that you're just, you will go back if things are changed. It's not only that. I mean, like, I, I feel like I'm from everywhere. I lived in several places. I lived in Tunis for a year to write Women Who Blow On Nuts. I, re, uh, I lived in Beirut to write another novel, in Oxford for a year, in Paris and so on. So I'm trying to make myself believe that this is another journey. This is part of a bigger journey. So life is like that. Uh, and, you know, I'm not the person who suffers most because of these conditions in Turkey. So I'm trying to keep it uh, cool. Now, so you, you, you really, you tell us in this book, uh, which is very compelling, I must say, and I read it in one sitting, that you wrote the book to counter a conviction that many citizens in other democracies hold, that what happened in Turkey could never happen in their country. What is the warning you want to give us? I mean, do you think that this is willful ignorance? Are we ourselves like uh, you were in Turkey saying, I'm not going to leave? Are we are we not aware of what's happening to us around the world? Well, the book has been published in several languages and it will be published in several other languages as well. And now it's out in the U.S. And I want to tell everybody, uh, especially the countries in the West, European countries, United States and Canada, uh, just one thing, get your act together. It is more serious than you think, and you cannot push this away by making sarcastic jokes about it or being paranoid about it. You cannot run away from it. It will come to you wherever you are and so on and so forth. I am not this Cassandra going around places, you know, telling these horrible prophecies. It's just we have to see the reality and we have to recognize the fact, acknowledge the fact that this is a global phenomenon. Of and strong men rising, you mean, in these places. Yeah, like, yeah. rising, right-wing populism or authoritarianism. Putin, uh, Salvini. Salvini. Erdogan, Trump, yeah. all of them. And Brexit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it is so 
terrifying. That one of the terrifying things is normalization. Uh, since you mentioned Brexit, how many of us would think that Boris Johnson would be a serious candidate for United Kingdom? Now uh, he's one of the most serious candidates. Uh, the jokes are becoming realities, and those are the jokes that we cannot laugh at anymore. So we need a global conversation, and that global conversation will generate a global solidarity automatically. Yeah. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/wondery and use code Wondery for twenty percent off your first purchase. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack. It's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Well, one of the key steps in the erosion of democracy, you say, is when leaders co-op language, right, and debase the truth. Tell me how you see that working—the post-truth phenomenon. Um, many in the United States and Europe, uh, especially journalists and thinkers, they deal with post-truth—the uh, concept of post-truth—in uh, a very technical way. It is about fact-checking. It's about telling the truth. And if we tell the truth enough times, you know, the lies will be removed from the social sphere and so on. But I do see post-truth as a more philosophical concept. It has ties with the concept of shame. We are losing shame in a very dramatic way. Shame has transformed. And in the book, I gave the example of this black and white photo from Vietnam, the girl running from the napalm attack. That photo brought shame to people in the United States and millions were on streets to say that not in our name, you cannot do this because we are ashamed of this situation. But nowadays, you know, we see babies washing ashore on Mediterranean, Syrian dead babies, and one day it's a shock and the second day nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. So there is a big moral crisis. It's not only a political crisis uh, that we calmingly call right-wing populism, but it's also a moral crisis. And that moral crisis actually created post-truth. People, um, the politicians, but not only politicians, media, all of us, I think, transformed the concept of shame in such a way that lying became normal. And so I think there's a deep connection between shame and post-truth, and it should be dealt uh, accordingly. Well, what obviously is a common denominator is that people seem to be now willing to trust leaders who've been shown to lie again and again without consequence or apology. When did that happen? You think it's to do with, with excess media that has inured people to having any shock or because things are moving too quickly for us to have to care? Mm-hmm. I was launching the book in Germany, and meanwhile, ironically, there was a, a exhibition in the History Museum called Democracy. And one part of the exhibition was forming the nation. And the first item was a microphone for radio. And there was a quote from Brecht 
saying that this, uh, because of the radio, now there is this mass communication and I don't know what's going to happen because of this mass communication. I think we humans, we invent things first and then we don't know what to do with them. Uh, and until we regulate these communication tools, they cause uh, really big problems. Radio created fascism and now social media is creating something. And no government on this planet has the power to regulate social media at the moment because they cannot uh, get into deals, you know, uh, equal deals with the big capital behind social media, behind Internet and so on. So we have this tool now and it's creating right wing populism. It's not on its own, of course, it's just a tool. You know, if we have the political power, as much if we use this tool, we as in people who are capable of critical thinking, uh, as good as right wing populists do, maybe it should turn to something else, a more beautiful thing that would generate beautiful things for humankind. But still, we couldn't regulate it. So uh, we cannot regulate You've it. You've also written about the distinction between dignity and pride and how dictators exploit that difference. This is something I I guess um, American opposition should be thinking about. I'm in New York since a few days, and I'm thinking it's not only the poor, but also the rich uh, who feel, I think, indignified because of this system. It's too much greed, too much cruelty, and you have to be numb to live this life. This is Uh, indignifying, if you ask me. And people are angry. Uh, And dismissed people, poor people, are angrier, uh, underprivileged people. And their dignity is stolen from them by the system, which constantly advocates some sort of cruelty and numbness. And when they get angry, there comes this guy who says that your pride is broken and I'm going to mend it and I'm going to make those people who break your pride kneel before you and apologize. You know, all that uh, narrative of real people and the corrupt elite and we are going to, you know, take revenge from that corrupt elite uh, in the name of real people. I think all that narrative stands upon this uh, dignity and pride uh, situation. Although dignity is stolen away from them, uh, their anger is exploited by right-wing populism by saying that we're going to take back your pride. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash Tina. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tina to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. There's a wonderful scene in your book where you describe yourself as sitting in this cafe in this obscure town in Turkey. And this was at the very beginning uh, when Erdogan was not yet a power in the land, but was going to become one. And you said that you met three aggressive nationalist supporters in a cafe and something about their demeanor and their message told you that these people were going to win. What was it that you saw in those three people in the cafe that made you realize early, very early on, that Erdogan's party was going to win? The feeling that they generate, that they have uh, the ultimate meaning in their hands. They have the meaning, whereas the other parties do not have the meaning. You know, one of the things that in today's world we are missing in this neoliberal system is that humans do need meaning. They do need bread. They do need equality. They do need rights, but they do need meaning. And we pushed that need uh, to the realm of religion. We left that uh, need of human being to the mercy of religion. 
However, uh, we have to deal with the fact that people need meaning even if they are the you know smallest actors in social life. And I think that need is exploited by right-wing populism as well. They give the people a meaning, so-called. In Brexit, uh, we saw this. Uh, they, they had a meaning all of a sudden, and now they have a Brexit party. You know, how much they should be craving for meaning that they gathered around this Brexit and it became the meaning of their life. So that was the reason, that prideful look, their their appearance, and they were the only one who knows what everything means. And they were, the real, and they were the real people. Yeah, they say. were the real people. Um, do you think that the next elections, uh, which President Erdogan uh, is looking to really overturn, he didn't like the results, and so there are new elections, uh, June the 23rd. Is this going to be another pivot point for Turkey? I mean, if Erdogan loses that election again, I mean, he lost the election in Istanbul, and it was obviously very uh, upsetting to him that his own town, where he was mayor before, uh, rejected him. Do you see him ramping up his dictatorship, or do you think that he'll accept if the opposition wins? Why would he? <laughs> people still, some people still uh, expect him to all of a sudden come to his senses and expect a defeat. No, it's not going to happen like that. We, I think the opposition uh, got the tiger by its tail and now there is no option than riding the tiger. <laughs> uh, and they are doing that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, tigers do not respond to being caught by their tail. Yeah. So I think it's going to get worse. Do you think that uh, President Erdogan would have slid towards dictatorship in the way that he has because he started, we all thought, well, you know, when he was mayor of Istanbul, he was a great success and we all thought that Turkey was a shining example of a deeply religious but secular and democratic country. Do you think that if Turkey had been accepted in the EU that Erdogan would have been different? I mean, I sometimes wonder whether his dignity was affronted by that and then he went Hmm. into being a strong man. Well, um... For 10 years, we have been lectured by Western countries, by Western intellectuals, how Turkey is going towards real democracy. It was so, you know, it made many people very furious because we were seeing that Turkey's democracy was getting worse and worse. And meanwhile, we were reading these columns uh, in several newspapers, prominent newspapers saying that, oh, real democracy has come to Turkey. Once again, America got it wrong. Yeah. No, it's not that. I'm like, imagine uh, like very prominent newspapers all over the world telling United States, oh, finally, you know, democracy is in United States. Trump is, you know, carrying real people to democracy. And, you know, imagine this hearing and reading for 10 years. It was horrible. So, yeah, uh, I think from the very beginning, uh, the political goal was obvious. The political goal uh, was to have power, cling on to power, and be more powerful. I do not think that authoritarian leaders have ideologies per se. Their only ideology is worshipping power. That's it. So uh, I cannot make any, you know, I I cannot, yeah, yeah, I cannot really answer that question. How how have women's rights, do you think, in Turkey been affected by Erdogan's rise? Is it worse for men now? Definitely worse. Uh, but this is a global phenomenon at the moment. We are all living in a sort of handmaid's tale, you know, environment. The women killings skyrocketed. Uh, abortion rights are damaged seriously, and women do not feel safe as much as they do in the past. Uh, I think we are 
you know, witnessing a malehood crisis as well. One of the reasons of right-wing populism maybe is that. And everywhere, this is the first time in human history women are so, you know, this much educated. They have the economy power. For the first time, they are not embarrassed to be powerful. And for the first time, they have the political experience. Um, so this is terrifying uh, for the status quo, I think. I mean, I was stunned to see that he said, uh, Erdogan, that no Muslim family should consider using birth control. I mean, yeah. that was an extraordinary comment. You know, we shouldn't be shocked by these right-wing populist leaders' incredible, absurd uh, statements. It's a way that they terrorize the social and political sphere as well. They keep on saying these things. Trump does it a lot. And then all of a sudden, oh, my God, you know, media is upside down. People are going like, how can he say that? How can he can be so, I don't know, absurd and so on and so forth? I think we should stop doing that. I think we shouldn't waste our emotions on the statements of right-wing populist leaders. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Erdogan has been so terrible to journalists, as I, you know, we've discussed about, you know, he's locking up journalists left, right and center. He rounded them up after the coup. Why are these journalists being kept in prison? I mean, what is it that they're saying that he finds so offensive? And what is the range of of offenses that a journalist can commit, supposedly, to get themselves put into prison? (laughs) Just telling the truth, (laughs) daring to tell the truth and not obeying the the leader. That's the only thing. Uh, And having some sort of dignity. And I think we're going to be living this all around the world. Uh, But then, you know, this is the thing. Most of the things they do, these leaders do, including Erdogan, is because they can do it. There's nothing to stop them. And when you take uh, journalists into prison, the next thing they do cannot be told by anyone else. That's why journalists are all over the world. They are becoming targets. Because when you take them in, then you're free to do whatever you like. Mm-hmm. Well, you're on the outside looking in at the state of democracy in the U.S. So what are you seeing in Trump's behavior now that fits your pattern of the rise of a strong man that we should all be very concerned about? Well, he's playing completely by the book, and it it is as if that book is written by Erdogan. I know that many Americans would think, like, okay, this crazy woman is coming from Turkey, a crazy country, obviously, telling us that the United States has something common with Turkey. How can that be possible? I know how it feels when someone from outside come to your country and trying to tell your story to you. 
but it's not what I'm doing. It, it, the thing I'm do, I'm trying to do is uh, I'm trying to show people that there are common global patterns of how these men do business. So we shouldn't be wasting our time by being appalled, being surprised, being shocked, uh, and you know several other things. Just let's see the main mechanism and let's find a way together to deal with it. Mr. Trump is doing exactly what Mr. Erdogan did in a far more shorter time, though. It's so incredible for me to follow American politics because Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump has shut down the government for the longest time in American history, and it took the entire American establishment to, you know, stop that shutdown. It took Erdogan 10 years to be able to do that. Uh, so you have to be really careful. Things are going faster in the United States than it did in Turkey. And I think social contract of this country should be renewed and Trump should be seen as a good opportunity to do that. You know, the entire system should be changed. But, you know, you Americans know better than I do what to do. And it's not my job to know what to do, but it's my job to tell you that what not to do. Right. Because we wasted our time a lot. Why do you think it's dangerous to laugh at rising authoritarians? You tell us that that's a dangerous thing to do, to laugh at them. Yeah. Because uh, there was a lot of laughter about Trump, of course, and then he won. Oh, my God, yeah. It's all over the place. Everything is about Trump now. Uh, laughter operates as a, as a therapeutic tool. Like, you know, it calms down your anxieties uh, when such a leader comes along. Uh, and then it's, it starts operating as uh, something like a shelter, comfortable shelter. As long as I can laugh at him, there's nothing serious. So sort it's, of. Just, it's a tool to dismiss the person's threat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But then it becomes sarcastic. And then uh, when that, that sarcasm takes over the social sphere, uh, that sarcasm kills the hope as well, kills the naivete or kills the... Uh, the idea of doing politics even. Uh, and that sarcasm sometimes turns into itself uh, and op- people in opposition are find themselves mocking each other. So, you know, there are phases of it. And the United States, I, I, I think, is, is in the second phase now. You write that this slide away from democracy is a 21st century phenomenon that we're fighting with 20th century tools. I think everybody's looking for the tools to fight this and feel uh, sort of thwarted and by the speed of social media and the speed of the news cycle that it's very difficult to keep outrage aloft because there's always another outrage. So what are the tools that we should be using to fight off the rise of the strong man? I mean, how, how do you go about it? Now there is this new world and we are trying to uh, find a way to find new political tools, but we cannot do it. The next generation can do it. I am very hopeful about uh, the climate strikers, in fact, because these are the guys who are born into social media, who can think uh, that way. and The, who, the school children who've gone out on the Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, in three years, mark my words, I think something big is going to happen, both in Europe and in the United States, because these guys, they're in high school now, but they go to university and they're going to get more politicized. And finally, they will be the ones who are going to fight authoritarianism and big capital and so on and so forth. Um, so I think they're going to find the new tools. One of the things that the problems that we have is the right are better with their sloganeering. I mean, 
you're a real wordsmith yourself. So, I mean, what are the words you think that would ignite liberal fervor to push back against Strowman's a, a, a battle cry that's better than make America great again? I mean, that's <laughs> that's something people can remember. You can get it on a hat. I mean, uh, recently, the uh, friend of mine who's a Remain person in the Brexit dispute, he said that there's got to be a new slogan now for rejecting Brexit. And his, what he came up with, which I liked, actually, was ask your kids, which is <laughs> the right thing to say, right? Exactly. Um, so what, how do we push back against the superior sloganeering, in a way, of the authoritarian... Well, I cannot come up with a slogan, at the, you know, on, on spot, but I, I know that the new politics should be based upon the word dignity, because it's not equality, it's not rights, it's something else, it's deeper, uh, you know, people are hurt in a deeper place uh, in this system all over the world. And I know from journalism, from my own life experience, that dignity sometimes, most of the time, is far more important than rights or equality and so on and so forth. So I think we have to push back with the slogan that we want to be human again. We want to be dignified human again. I don't know how to say it in a yeah, sloganish way. But yeah. <laughs> You've also written a great deal about the role of women in the world. And um, I mean, what do you think the role, the unique role women can be playing in this moment in history? It's not just words. I do think that the future will be female. And it is becoming female. It's already in the making. Uh, but we have to reimagine power as women because we are now ready to take over. But we don't know how the new world should be. So we have to reimagine power can we reimagine power without hierarchy? Can we imagine strength without oppression? So uh, all the big concepts should be redefined by women in a more compassionate way, I think. And I, I believe that we're going to do it because we do not want to repeat uh, the mistakes of the past. We want very interesting. I mean, who, who do you look to when you're thinking about the reimagining of power? Mm, uh, my mom. <laughs> no, you know, all the women that I met uh, throughout my life, they were strong women, but they were not uh, necessarily powerful. They were using their strength to be resilient, to come back from defeats and so on. But they weren't cruel. So what is the power that we want uh, what kind of strength do we want? I think this is uh, the central issue about female feature, and we will have to redefine it. Mm -hmm. I am trying to redefine it. I, probably my next book will be about this. Yeah. Uh, this is the central central issue. Yeah, well, because women have a, a, a unique authority when they inside the family structures always have. Um, yeah. And we see with Nancy Pelosi how she operates in that way. Exactly. She's one of the few people who Trump... And uh, also, is, is intimidated by. We, we have very special experience about friendship. We do have different friendship than men do. And I am thinking uh, about this. How can we politicize the word friendship? How can we build solidarities upon the word friendship? So these are the things I'm thinking about right now. And this is, these are the things that I'll be writing about soon. But that will be a different world. I do believe that we can do it. I'm like this. This we're coming to the grand finale of the planet, so we have to do something very spectacular. <laughs> well, Eche, anyone who is interested in ideas and interested in uh, what to do about the rise of authoritarian 
threat throughout the world should for sure read Ajay's book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tina. For coming to I join me. I cannot thank you enough for this. Thank you. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. And to hear news about more smart, wonderful women, subscribe to the Women in the World bi-weekly newsletter at womeninTheWorld.com. This is the last episode of Season 1 of TBD. We're taking a break for the summer. This is a great time to catch up on the episodes you've missed, including my conversations with Hillary Clinton, Phoebe Robinson, Aaron Sorkin, Gretchen Carlson, and David Remnick. Happy summer. <laughs>